Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Kevin Rennert, a colleague of mine at RFF, and full disclosure, also a dear friend. Uh, Kevin joined RFF as a fellow in 2017, but just before that, served as Deputy Associate Administrator for the Office of Policy at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Before that, he worked in various capacities on Capitol Hill, both as a senior advisor on energy for the Senate Finance Committee and as senior professional staff for the Senate Energy Committee. In addition to being a fellow at RFF, Kevin is also the director of RFF's Social Cost of Carbon Initiative, and his expertise and leadership in this area make him the perfect candidate to join me in discussing the aforementioned social cost of carbon, what it is, why it matters, how it's evolved, and what is happening next with this important number. Stay with us. Hi, Kevin. Welcome to Resources Radio. It's really nice to talk with you. It's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I would love to introduce you to our audience, our listening public, and start with a question about you. So what steered your life towards working on energy and environmental issues? Can you tell us a little bit more about your background? Absolutely. So I, as a kid, was actually always pretty inspired by nature and uh, really wanted to understand how it worked and uh, really got a lot of my energy from just being outside and, and, uh, and enjoying that. And so as I got older and realized that, uh, that what I wanted most from a kind of scientific standpoint was to understand how nature worked and then to take that understanding and move it to work on problems that were going to help uh, society. And so that steered me to actually studying physics and then climate science uh, as a graduate student and then, uh, then coming to Washington, D.C. to try to apply some of that knowledge in ways that would help uh, all the people of the world to uh, address climate change. Okay. Well, we're talking about one sort of specific policy determinant today. I'm not sure if that's the right phrase, but uh, which is the social cost of carbon. And I guess I really think of the social cost of carbon as lying at the intersection of climate science, which of course is your background, and economics. And I will note to our listeners that Kevin speaks the language of economics quite fluently, even though he is trained as a climate scientist. So, um, But Kevin, most of our audience is probably familiar with the concept of the social cost of carbon or what we'll call SCC for the next half hour. But can you give us a quick reminder of what it is and how how it's used in a U.S. regulatory context? Sure. The social cost of carbon is uh, is an economic tool. It's a, it's an estimate of the economic damages that would result from the emission of an additional ton of greenhouse gases. And so the, what it does is by, by looking to the future and saying, if we emit that um, additional ton of greenhouse gases and we could figure out sort of over time what the damages are that result from it, um, we can figure out um, how to incorporate that into our analysis of um, actions that we might choose to take um, in terms of policies or regulations and things of that nature. And so the way that the federal government incorporates it um, is in the regulatory analysis it does for big um, kind of policy actions that it's going to take for a very long time, since back in the Reagan administration, uh, the federal government has been required to do um, benefit cost analysis um, for these big regulations. And so um, as it does that, it's, it's trying to understand both the costs and the benefits of actions that it might be taking. And when you do, you know, analysis like that, of course, you would want it to be as comprehensive as possible. And so you'd be trying to take into account, you know, not just the costs that might be borne by, um, for example, a regulated industry, but also the benefits that might come to society broadly for, um, for those costs being undertaken. 
And the um, social cost of carbon fits into that um, by adding the effects of an action on climate change um, into that cost-benefit analysis alongside all those other costs and benefits that you might be thinking about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what's the history behind the SEC then? I, my understanding is that it hasn't always been part of benefit-cost analysis used by the federal government. When did it come into use in federal regulatory decision-making? So the SEC actually um, started getting used in federal analysis um, back in 2008 as a result of a court case um, in which the George W. Bush administration had put forward a regulation that quantified the reductions in greenhouse gas emissions from the regulation, um, but it didn't actually assign any value um, to the benefits of those reductions in, in the economic analysis that accompanied um, that, that regulation. And so the courts agreed um, with those that, that filed the suit that um, by not including the, the benefits, you know, with any dollar value um, to, to those reductions, that, that it had effectively said that the value of those reductions, the benefits from those reductions was identically zero dollars. And so the courts, uh, you know, the judge said, you know, you can actually have a, a pretty robust debate about what the value of those reductions should be, but uh, identically zero is is clearly incorrect. And so it kind of put it back to the uh, George W. Bush administration um, to start valuing those uh, um, the benefits from from reductions in greenhouse gas emissions as a part of all the other things that they incorporated into their benefit cost analysis. So, so that was back in 2008. Um, but uh, the Bush administration, as it started doing that, um, every agency was sort of left to itself to um, to kind of come up with what its value for the social cost of carbon would be to use in its analysis. And as it turned over into the Obama administration, the Obama administration took the approach that, you know, a ton of emissions emitted, you know, from one place is the same as a ton of emissions emitted from another place. And it really doesn't make sense for the federal government to be using different values for the benefits of those greenhouse gas emissions across the government. And so it embarked on this, uh, this effort to actually come together and bring, um, you know, economists and scientists from across the federal government um, to think about how the federal government itself should approach this question and, and actually develop a value for the social cost of carbon. So over time, this, uh, this what is referred to as the Interagency Working Group on Social Cost of Greenhouse Gases uh, came together and, uh, and developed an approach based on a lot of uh, academic literature and put forward estimates in 2010 and then updated them periodically throughout the administration in 2013 and, and 2016 as well. So after the Obama administration, um, the Trump administration, when it came into the White House, um, took a bit of a different approach to the social cost of carbon in that it's um, disbanded the interagency working group on the social cost of greenhouse gases. But it actually maintains uh, the the approach that that uh, body had put forward um, for putting forward its own social cost of carbon. So it actually kept almost all of the machinery and the approach that the, the previous interagency working group had put together, but it made two important modifications. Um, one is that it focused only on damages that were being felt within the United States, and the other was that it's uh, used a higher rate of economic discount um, for, for calculating the social cost of carbon. And these two pieces in tandem, focusing just on um, you know the U.S. and having a higher rate of discount, um, actually reduced the number from you know, what was roughly um, $50 per ton to down as low as about a dollar per ton. All right. So then here we are today during the Biden administration. And I would I guess I would say the SEC is is sort of having its moment again, because just a few days before we're recording this episode, the Biden administration, well, they're currently working on updating the SEC and just a few days ago announced an interim update um, on the road to releasing a more developed update that's due to be finalized in January of 2022. So to help us understand that interim update that was released, can you tell us a little bit more about what goes into the sort of the meat grinder, <laughs> the intellectual meat grinder to produce an update like that? 
Sure. Well, first, uh, just a few words about, I guess, about the interim update. Um, so I think that there were a lot of things that were under consideration for this interim update. And, and it actually goes to this executive order that came out on, on day one of the Biden administration saying, uh, you know, as an administration, they were going to revisit the social cost of carbon and and put out an update that was going to come out within a year, but that there needed to be a step along the way to provide the federal government with an interim estimate um, to use in its economic analysis until we got to that sort of fully um, baked estimate that incorporates all the latest science. There was a lot of, of sort of outside commentary on what the federal government should do um, for within this even first 30-day period. Um, and, and in the end, I think that there was a, a clear recognition that with just 30 days, um, there wasn't sufficient time to really do a robust kind of um, process to make big changes to, um, to the social cost of carbon um, that the Biden administration was going to put out. So in the end, what they did was actually go back to the, uh, the Obama-era estimates um, that were put out in, in 2013 and 2016 just updating them for inflation. Okay. So in terms of the meat grinder, uh, I feel like the, the meat grinder is, is really getting started now. Um, and and there's there's a lot, it turns out, that goes into updating the social cost of carbon. It's a very technical exercise um, because these estimates do, as you kind of mentioned in the beginning, cut across a lot of different scientific aspects. When you think about sort of the four steps of, of estimating the SCC, you actually need to know something about um, socioeconomics, where you're headed um, in terms of, of emissions, in terms of population, in terms of the economy. You also then need to know something about uh, what the climate system is going to do in response to those emissions. And of course, then you need, once you have a sense of what the climate system is going to do, um, you need to know what's the um, result is of what the climate system did on different economic sectors. So you need to translate those changes in, in the climate into uh, changes in, in the economy. Um, these are done through things called damage functions. And then finally, you need to have a step where you kind of sum up all those um, those damages over time, and then you bring them back into kind of present day dollars. And that's, that's done through economic discounting. So all of those different pieces are actually pretty complicated. Um, and um, some of them actually are, are um, slightly a departure from what uh, you know you see kind of in common practice um, in terms of like you need projections of emissions that go out you know pretty far into the future farther than um, farther than you would normally have. Um, so so there's a lot of science to accommodate and there's a really rich um, kind of set of academic literature to to draw from. So it's it's a big it's a big undertaking um, and and clearly there are a lot of entities that are affected by these estimates. Um, and so it's important that that whatever the federal government does, it does so in a really transparent fashion and it does it in a process that is very inclusive so that, uh, that there's, there's a lot of um, kind of input into it so that everybody feels like what has, uh, has happened is, is sort of the result of a robust process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's, let's pull those pieces apart for just a second then and um, maybe start with the damage functions. So you know, damage functions implies by by its name, um, the sort of impacts that, and as you mentioned, the impacts that continuing to emit greenhouse gases will have on various parts of the economy, also on natural systems, all sorts of things. So obviously the, the science is also evolving quite quickly, I would guess, on what those damages will look like. So can you say a little bit more about kind of what you expect to see in terms of updating those damage functions and maybe how the science of projecting those has evolved in recent years? Absolutely. So um, 
Well, you're exactly right. There has been a huge evolution in terms of both the climate science um, in our understanding of how the climate system is reacting to increased emissions, as well as in uh, understanding the translation of that change in climate into into damages. And if you think, um, you know, previously these, for example, um, the models that were used to um, to calculate the social cost of carbon um, were being run at potentially a global level, meaning that there is just sort of you know one or, or two kind of damage functions that's representing global damages from a global change in the kind of globally average uh, uh, temperature um, to regional damage functions where you might have maybe 14 regions representing you know all the countries around the world. And so one of the big advances um, has on the science side has been carried forward by the Climate Impact Lab. Um, and they have taken uh, this, this approach to, to really look to generate damage functions across multiple economic sectors um, where they're working at a very highly resolved um, level, both spatially and temporally. So they are looking effectively at looking at data sets um, with county level data effectively around the world. Um, and understanding the effects that they, they're seeing that is resulting from climate change um, at that level of, um, of spatial resolution. So really, really highly resolved. Um, that's one approach that is really looking to all of the data that's, that's out there to come up with very tailored, um, you know, kind of small scale um, damages. And you've also seen other researchers um, look at, you know, similar questions that have been out there before, such as like, what is the effect of climate change in terms of damages to crops, to agriculture? Um, and, and rather than, um, you know, just um, take a, a fairly simplified approach, um, you've seen researchers like Fran Moore at UC Davis um, and her co-authors who um, was able to look at um, kind of the effects on agricultural yield um, for some of the most important crops around the world um, and understand what the actual change in the yield was, but then also incorporate, um, you know, things like the effects on trade um, to understand what the net economic effects are um, for a given country um, as a result of, of changing the climate on, on their agricultural productivity and, and, um, and resulting effects. Um, in addition, you have other people there that are running these integrated assessment models to do things like uh, look at uh, the effects of um, changes in temperature on what residential and building um, usage energy looks like, where you have you know less expenditures on um, on heating in the um, in the wintertime and greater expenditures on on cooling in the summertime, and understanding sort of the, the net economic effects around the world um, of things like that using using different types of models. So there's just been huge advancements sort of across the board. Um, and this is all stuff that the Interagency Working Group is going to have to, to look to try to um, incorporate in its updated estimates. Kevin, you're giving a, a very good illustration of why this is a complex exercise, because even just hearing the examples you laid out right there, I can think of a thousand more of where you would need to look at this and need to consider this. And I guess I wanted to ask one question about, are there... Are there damages where the science really hasn't evolved over the past, let's say, 10 years and where there's still kind of a gap in our knowledge and we really need to be now turning towards those damage functions with a, a bit of a blank slate in terms of what we know? Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, there are most certainly um, a number of economic sectors that uh, for which the, the literature has not actually delivered quite as robust uh, kind of an update for that. And I would you know, say, you know, one of those certainly is, is the understanding of, of how to think about ecosystems um, and, and the value that ecosystems provide. It's just a very challenging, challenging question. Uh, actually, that same researcher, Fran Moore, has, has a paper out that, that offers one suggestion. And there's a researcher named Steve Newold who has some um, thoughts as well. But that's just an area where uh, there is still a lot of work to be done, I would say. 
Um, in addition, you hear a lot, and you actually saw this even um, in, in some of the pieces that were put out by the federal government, um, kind of in support of the executive order, that things like tipping elements, um, the idea that, uh, that you could move, for example, beyond a threshold in the, uh, in the climate system where suddenly you get a, a big feedback, like a lot of outgassing of, um, of methane from the permafrost um, in, in the Arctic or things like that, that, um, that still um, there's a lot of work to be done to understand those tipping elements from a climate science standpoint. And there's certainly a lot of work to be done to actually incorporate uh, that into the, uh, the integrated assessment models that you use for calculating the SEC as well. Hmm. Okay. Well, thanks. Um, all right. So now let's, <laughs> let's turn to uh, another crucial component of the SEC, which is the discount rate. You mentioned that a little bit earlier in your comments, and I wanted to circle back with that because I know it's, a, um, it's often a controversial part of the uh, calculations of the SEC. As you mentioned, it's, it's one of the factors that the Trump administration really looked to in its changes to the SEC. So um, occasionally, I, I, you know, I meet folks who argue that unless the discount rate is zero, you're essentially saying that you don't care about your grandchildren or great-grandchildren. So clearly this is something about looking into the future and impacts in the future. But can you can you help our listeners understand the concept of discounting and, and why it can lead to these sort of arguments about the importance of the future? Absolutely. That's a great question. That's a great way of, uh, of framing it too in terms of the, the same kind of arguments that, that we get all the time. Um, so economic discounting at, at its heart um, is really just about the simple fact that, um, you know, a dollar that you might have today feels different to you than a dollar that you might have in 10 years. Um, and so if I offered you that trade-off, um, would you like a dollar for me today or a dollar in 10 years or some some later period of time, you would think about that and say, well, if I had a dollar today, I would, you know, be able to do something with it. And if I didn't have a dollar until, you know, 10 years from now, uh, I would not be able to do something with it until it was 10 years from now. And there's a sort of a value in having it now versus having it later. So the discount rate is really just a mathematical way of, of trying to represent that exact kind of concept that, that something in the future um, has a different value to you um, than, than it does if you had it um, today. And you can turn that on its head a little bit um, to say, well, you know, how would you feel about damages that you feel today right now versus damages that you might feel that were the same magnitude um, you know, sometime in the future as well? So, so the discount rate is really fundamentally important to the social cost of carbon um, because, um, first of all, it, it kind of represents, you know, this exact trade-off that you're saying. There is, there's sort of a, an element of it of saying, well, how much do you value um, damages that might be felt by, you know, someone that isn't you in the future? Um, and so, so the number that you actually put on that um, is, is really kind of a, a very um, important way of, of looking at that and kind of evaluating it. And it's also fundamentally important just because um, it, the, it actually has a huge sway on the ultimate number. Um, so if you even just think about what uh, these interim estimates that just came out from the federal government, um, the central discount rate that is used um, is a discount rate of 3%. Um, and that results in a social cost of carbon of $51 per metric ton. If you had a 5% um, discount rate, which doesn't really sound like it's much higher, right? Um, it turns out that that drops the, um, the social cost of carbon down from $51 to $14. On the other hand, if you look just down at 2.5%, um, that moves the value from $51 up to $76 per ton. And so these relatively small changes in the discount rate actually have a very big change um, on, on the resulting social cost of carbon, because what they're effectively saying is the social cost of carbon is, is summing up damages that, uh, that happen you know, into the future, um, because a given ton of greenhouse gas emissions that you put up in the atmosphere sticks around in the atmosphere for a very long time. And so damages continue to accrue from it. 
Um, and the discount rate is the way you sort of start kind of cut off damages in the future and say, we care about those damages less and we're not going to add them to our, our total. So this is what's at the heart of your, um, your, the comment that people are making to you, that if you don't have an economic discount rate of zero, that means you don't care about uh, the you know, generations, you know, a few generations down the line, because you know, effectively you have used a discount rate to, to discount those damages that would be felt by them away. So everything that I've just said underscores how important the discount rate selected for calculating the social cost of carbon is. But I should be clear that the federal government doesn't just arbitrarily select those discount rates. That 3% discount rate that I mentioned used for the recent interim estimate of the SEC, for example, is the discount rate used by the federal government more broadly across its economic analyses to represent what's known as the consumption rate of discount. And that's set out in one of these esoteric yet highly influential government documents known as Circular A4. Those other values, the 2.5% and the 5%, were carefully selected by the Obama-era interagency working group to represent different kinds of uncertainty with respect to that consumption rate of discount so that policymakers could assess values um, for the SEC calculated across each of those discount rates to get a sense of the uncertainty in the SEC that's coming just from that final discounting step. Now, the guidance in Circular A4 that sets out the consumption rate of discount across the federal government is actually pretty dated and has been updated in nearly 20 years. So over the time, a lot has changed. So even if you apply the same methodology as was used to calculate the 3% established in 2003, but updated to include more recent market conditions, you'd end up with a lower consumption rate of discount. And that finding is consistent with the broader economic literature as well, with many different lines of evidence all pointing in the direction of lowering that discount rate. So in parallel with the process to update the SEC, there's another Biden executive order on modernizing regulatory review, which is widely expected to consider economic discounting issues more broadly and revisit and modernize the guidance contained in Circular A4. Now, ideally, that update will be done in a way that seamlessly incorporates problems with intergenerational consequences like climate change. So that process could be expected to bear on the discounting approach used for the SEC. So discounting is clearly a pretty weedy and technical topic. And for um, listeners that want to get a bit of a, a further treatment of this to get a sense of, of some of the, the things to think about when it comes to economic discounting, there are a number of different RFF publications that one can look to. Um, one is actually an explainer that was put out by RFF fellow Brian Prest um, that you can find on the RFF website. Another that actually gets into some of the, um, the evolution of the thinking on economic discounting, the current state of the literature, um, was included as a part of a, a joint technical document that, uh, that we at the RFF Social Cost of Carbon Initiative authored with, um, with NYSERDA um, as the state of New York was considering um, different issues related to coming up with its own uh, valuation for carbon. That's great. That's great. Well, uh, okay, so let me turn to the third major element of the SEC that you referenced at the beginning, which is a, a number of things under the heading of socioeconomic projections. And so can you describe what goes into those projections and why those matter to the calculations of the number? Absolutely. So the, the socioeconomic projections, um, you know, kind of encompass a, a few different things, but at, at its heart, it's really sort of the state of, of uh, you know, what's happening in society um, moving into the future. So it's things like how many people are there, population, and so what does economic growth look like? What is everybody sort of doing in terms of a GDP per capita standpoint? And um, as well as just what are the resultant emissions that are coming out um, on, um, on our pathway moving forward? All of those things you can imagine would have a really big impact on social cost of carbon, because if you think about, uh, you know, damages, you know, if our economy is is quite large and is, has grown a lot, um, then a given events actually might have greater economic damages on it. 
Um, at the same time, we might be better positioned to uh, actually withstand those damages. Um, similarly, like if there are a lot of people, then then a given heat wave would have the potential to actually affect more people. Um, so all that stuff really, really matters. Um, and the the way that the uh, federal governments approached this problem previously um, was through the use of a few different scenarios. Um, they actually used five different scenarios um, of these exact variables, sort of um, emissions, um, population, economic growth, and so on. Um, and, and they just said, we have chosen these scenarios from an exercise that was carried out uh, in, by the Energy Modeling Forum, and they were in general designed to span the kind of space of uncertainty. Um, and, and there was no suggestion that one of the scenarios was more likely than others. Um, and it was actually just that they all could potentially be equally likely, and they had tried to span the the, uh, the uncertainty. And so they averaged across them as they, they ran the models um, according to those scenarios. And so by doing so, they were looking to, to span the space. So on the socioeconomic projections, the, uh, the National Academy of Sciences, um, as a part of sort of a voluminous set of recommendations that it provided the federal government for improving the estimation methodology of uh, the social cost of carbon, um, suggested that a few different improvements could be made to those scenarios that have been used before. One fundamental one was to move away from scenarios. Um, it said that actually, fundamentally, what you would like to have, um, instead of having a bunch of different scenarios that are equally likely, would be to have an understanding of what your most likely um, you know, approach was going to be, and then the uncertainty around um, that, that most likely kind of pathway. And so shifting instead from having kind of discrete um, scenarios, as you would think about them, to being more like um, kind of like probability densities of these different, different uh, variables. And so this is something that's, uh, that we've actually undertaken at RFF um, to improve, um, to generate these probability densities for, for the socioeconomics, for um, economic growth per capita, for population, for um, energy per unit of, of economic growth, and also for, um, for the carbon intensity of, of the way that we use energy. By generating these things and, and putting them all together, you have a, a probabilistic um, representation of, of where we're headed with the socioeconomics. So I guess I want to ask then, you know, clearly you've done a great job of articulating all the thinking that's gone into this number to date. Uh, the Biden administration is looking to to release a finalized number in January of 2022, as, as was mentioned earlier. So what happens in between now and then? How do we get from where we are today where we have this reverting to the 2013 Obama number to that final number that the Biden administration is going to release in about a year? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's one that's, uh, you know, it's it's clear that the interagency working group um, that has been, you know, stood up um, first to come out with these interim estimates and also to steward the the updated numbers is going to need to lay out what that process looks like. Um, and one one can imagine that uh, certainly there's going to be a lot of chance for, for stakeholder input. Um, in the, the interim estimates, there was a note that there will be a federal register um, uh, you know, notice that we'll have a series of questions on exactly this uh, this sort of question. Like, uh, what are the things that they should be thinking about in the process? Um, how should the process look? Um, you know, what what are the relevant scientific inputs that should be taken into consideration for this? And so I think that there's going to be, you know, a certain amount of response to that. Um, and then there's going to be a process by which um, everybody is um, able to kind of put forward uh, their improvements. And, and the federal government is going to uh, kind of start to incorporate them into a final number. 
Now, the uh, you know clearly there is even a reference to public comments uh, um, in the initial executive order, and s- certainly this this National Academy of Sciences um, report that I, I mentioned, um, I think, is mentioned throughout both the technical support document that was used to support the interestnets as well as the executive order, and so I think it's really going to be a roadmap um, for them. And a very important piece of that was certainly transparency um, and also the ability for public comment. Um, and so I would imagine that, you know, we're, we're talking about a final estimate in a set of estimates in January 2022. I would certainly imagine that that well before that, um, there would be a you know proposal for what those final estimates would look like that would actually go out and kind of wrap its arms around all these different potential updates um, that would, would then be taken into account for the, the final update. So get ready, listeners. This is your chance to <laughs> weigh in chance. on the, the social chance. cost of carbon. <laughs> Open for public comment. Uh, and any, anyone who has feelings on discount rates, this is your moment to shine. So um, great. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for talking through uh, this very important number and how we get to an updated social cost of carbon. Uh, certainly working with you at RFF, um, I understand, again, just how much work has gone into this. And so I really appreciate your taking the time to talk through it with me and share your knowledge with our listeners. Uh, So let me just close with our regular feature, Top of the Stack. And I wanted to ask what you have read or watched or heard recently related to the environment that you think is really interesting and that you would recommend to our listeners. Thanks. It's and it's really been a pleasure to be here talking with you. So thanks so much for for having a podcast on the social cost of carbon, giving it its uh, moment in the sun, and sure. uh, and for having me on to, to talk about it. Um, you know, at the same time that there's all this activity in the federal government to work on the social cost of carbon, you know, which assesses the damages from additional um, you know tons of greenhouse gas emissions, there's also a huge effort to um, to think about well, how would you mitigate those damages? How would you actually reduce emissions? Um, and so this is you know moving the United States to a, a decarbonized economy is something I find very, very interesting. I work on that side of that. And to get super nerdy here, there was a recent National Academy of Sciences report um, called Accelerating Decarbonization of the U.S. Energy System. This is actually something that that, um, a few different RFF affiliates, uh, Sue Tierney, who's on our board, as well as Billy Pizer, who is a university fellow, um, were involved in the the crafting of as, as part of the National Academy of Sciences committee that put out this report. That's just a fascinating read um, because thinking about these complicated challenges um, kind of as a system and thinking about the approaches you might take to really decarbonize our, our the way we use energy is is very complex and, and really, really interesting and important. All right. Well, some light bedtime reading for those. <laughs> I think it clocks in at several hundred pages if I'm not Yeah. yeah these, these academies <laughs> reports rarely are, are on the short side. <laughs> But I, as you as you noted, chock full of information and really at the heart of how we drive towards a decarbonized economy. So, um, yeah, never, never a shortage of information to read when it comes to this particular topic. And thanks, Kevin. Well, thank you again for taking the time. I really appreciate it and couldn't be more timely in terms of our ability to have this conversation just after those interim estimates were released. So I really appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much, Kristen. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. 
The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.